Um, at this point, we know that John is on the island of Patmos. Uh, he was um, exiled um, because he would not stop preaching and teaching about Jesus. Um, uh, <laughs> church history uh, teaches, I don't, we don't know, you know, it, it seems kind of, you know, incredible. But this is what, uh, as is recorded, they say that John um, would not stop uh, teaching about Jesus. They tried to kill John uh, by dip, um, boiling him in oil three times, but he would not die. And so they just shipped him off to the island of Patmos to work in the mines. Okay, um, And on the island of Patmos, uh, he has this revelation of, of Jesus. And then, of course, um, later on, he's released and is back in Ephesus. So that's just a one-minute, two-minute summary of the background information. What's more important, I think, <coughs> is to try to understand the ways that people see the book of Revelation. All right, so throughout this series, and I say this series is going to go on for a while. It's 22 chapters, uh, and uh, so that's a lot to cover. And even if you think about chapters two and three, it's seven different messages. So I think it's going to take us two months and we'll still be just getting to chapter four. Okay, so this is going to be a long series. Okay, you know, I think I think my relationship series was 10 months. I think that holds the record for the longest series. This might be a challenge. Okay. So I don't know. We'll see how 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 long this goes, but because it's, it's so involved, we'll have to refer back to Old Testament scriptures and and things like that. So um, there are essentially three ways. So the point the point I'm making is that this is not necessarily a series that's going to be a bunch of sermons, as much as teaching our way through each chapter of the Bible and how it kind of summarizes and brings to you know um, conclusion a lot of things that started in the Old Testament. Okay, so three major views on how to understand the book of Revelation. And this kind of plays out in the way people see or interpret the things that happen in the book of Revelation. All right, so the first view um, of how to understand Revelation is what we call the preterist view. Okay, um, this just means, people like, how do you spell preterist? Just say the past view. Okay, past. Okay, so. Those who um, who hold to a preterist view, they view, um, they believe that most, if not all, of the events of the Book of Revelation have already taken place in the past. Right? They believe that that John was writing, uh, the the group that John was writing to, that the revelation was fulfilled um, in their lifetime. Right. So usually they, they believe that the events in Revelation are referring to the Roman Empire, and therefore it was basically a code for, you know, for John. He could not say Rome, so he would say Babylon, right? As a, so it's a past view. The second viewpoint on the book of Revelation is what we would call the historical view, right? And the historical view those who hold to the historical view, they view the book of Revelation as covering the entire church age. So from the first coming of Christ until the time Jesus comes again, that is the book of Revelation is, is, taught, is symbolically referring to all of the events that take place um, between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. Now, this view is probably the most popular view because um, people who hold to this view tend to see current events and people as fulfilling what is spoken of in the book of Revelation, right? So, for example, it was really popular during the Reformation, right, because uh, Martin Luther and the other reformers believed that the Pope was the Antichrist, and so it was really good if that's your enemy. Like he's the Antichrist, hate him, kind of thing, right? Um, but again, it's popular because we tend to see all events that are taking place today as fulfillment. So every time there's an earthquake, like, well, the Bible says there's going to be earthquakes. <laughs> you know? So, so we tend to equate the events and the people 
in Revelation with events and figures that take place um, today. The third view is we would just call it like a futuristic view. Right? And those who hold to a futuristic view, uh, they, they look at chapters 6 through 19 of the book of Revelation as still future to us. Right. Chapters six through 19 would be considered future to us. They still have not occurred yet because they actually represent the 70th week of Daniel. Right. So, you know, Daniel had had a prophecy of 70 weeks and then 69 weeks of those weeks have been fulfilled. There's one week or seven year period of time left out there that is yet to be fulfilled. And so so people who hold to the futuristic view. They believe that chapters 6 through 19, um, well, I guess still chapter 20, 21 and 20, 21 and 22 would be future as well, but still uh, are referring to things that have not happened yet. They will happen still in the future, right? So those are, the, are, are mainly the three views. I know that it's, it's kind of, uh, you know, kind of squashing a lot of distinctions in these views down to these three. But again, these are the three major interpretations, right? Seeing the, the events of, of Revelation as completely past and fulfilled uh, in the first century, right? In the lifetime of, of, of John, um, the historical view that believes that everything that the book of Revelation talks about um, is just symbolic of things that will take place between the first coming of Jesus in the first century and whenever he comes back, right? Um, and then the futuristic view that sees everything from chapter 6 of Revelation on as still future to us. It has not occurred yet. Okay. Now, so the question is, how do we decide which one of these views is correct? <laughs> Read the Bible. <laughs> believe the Bible. So you're saying that, that people who disagree with your view don't read or believe the Bible? <laughs> Strike that from the record. <laughs> the answer is we have to look at the text. Okay. And I think that John gives us a way of knowing which one of these views is correct. Okay. Now, I want you to look at chapter 1 of the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1. I believe John gives us an outline for his book. And we can, in a sense, discern which one of these views or combination of these views is most likely correct. A lot of music going on today. <laughs> hey, techno and... All kinds of stuff. <laughs> Everybody in Revelation chapter 1? If you can't find it, go to the complete, turn, close your Bible, look at the back cover, and then just open it. Okay. You will be probably in like a concordance with a list of all of the words. All right. Just flip a couple more pages, you'll be there. All right. So Revelation chapter 1, verse 19. John, I believe, is giving us an outline for his book. Of course, we know that uh, Jesus is speaking to him here, most likely. This is what he says in verse 19. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. Now, what's interesting is when you look at this, right, uh, of, of course, everyone kind of sees that the book of Revelation is, is, is broken up into three sections, right? Chapter 1, chapters 2 and 3, and then chapters 4 through 22. Now, what's, what's interesting, I think that if you keep this outline, I think that the things that you have seen represents chapter 1. He's, he's writing about 
him seeing the resurrected, crucified Jesus Christ. Because that's what's happening in chapter 1. He's writing the things that he has seen. He says, write the things that are, right, present tense, the things that are, right? And that would represent the church age, chapters 2 and 3. He's writing to the church. As a matter of fact, this is something interesting. I want you to look at, I want you to look at chapter 2, verse 7. Chapter 2, verse 7. I want you to see something here that's very interesting in this book. Chapter 2, verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says, what? To the churches. Chapter 2, verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Chapter 2, verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says Chapter 2, verse 29. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Chapter 3, verse 6. Chapter 3, verse 6. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Okay. Chapter 3, verse 13. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And lastly, Verse 22, he says, you probably can guess, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Okay. Now, I want you to skip over to chapter 13 real quick. Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13. Verse 9 says, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. What's missing? Why is it, why is it that in chapters 2 and 3, every time he makes the statement, he says, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Then after, after that, he doesn't use that phrase anymore. He doesn't mention the church. Obviously, the church is not present, right? Okay, so it's, it's interesting that some event has to take place as so that whatever he is saying in these chapters, he's not referring to the church. He says, if anyone can hear, let him hear. So, um, chapters 2 and 3 are covering his message to the church. Okay. Chapter 4, right, begins, I believe, the, the last section. Notice he says, write the things that you have seen, the things that are, and the things that will take place, what? After this, okay. Now, he uses this uh, um, Greek phrase, metatauta, right? Now, again, what's interesting, if you turn to chapter 4, verse 1, when he says, I want you to write the things that will take place after this, okay? Right, Greek phrase metatauta. That phrase is used again over and over and over again in the book of Revelation, okay? And I believe that actually it is John outlining the visions that he sees, okay? Chapter 4, verse 1. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place when? After this, or after these things, depending on your translation. Chapter 7, verse 1. Kay. You see the phrase again. After these things. Chapter 7, verse 9, after these things. Chapter 15, verse 5, guess what it says? <laughs> after these things, right? Um, 
what do you think, uh, chapter 18, verse 1, what do you think it's going to say after these things? Chapter 19, verse 1, what do you think it's going to say after these things? Chapter 20, verse 3, after these things, okay? So John is, is outlining for us the visions that he sees. And probably these visions, the, the, the word metatalta is giving us a clue that he has seen one vision, that vision is concluded, and now there's a progression taking place because now he's getting another vision, right? Um, and, and probably the progression is chronological, a pro chronological um, progression, but it, it may not necessarily be be completely clear that it's chronological, but there is some kind of progress taking place in the vision that he's having, right? Everybody's with me, right? So I, I, I tend to, you know, even in my own mind, go back and forth on, on this, <laughs> right? Um, I hold to a the futuristic view, although... I think that you can't entirely separate the futuristic view from the historical view, right? I think that you have to recognize that the Antichrist is not going to pop on the scene one day and say, hey, it's me, okay? Now take this, you know, this stamp and stamp 666 on your hand, okay? That there has to be some form of, of progression that leads up to this, right? It's somewhat, you know... Sometimes there may be like a virus and they say, hey, take this chip so we can keep track of you. <laughs> I'm just joking. But they do have a chip that they say that you can take and they can keep track and make sure that you are not sick. So you can get it if you want. That's on you. I don't know. I'm not saying it's the mark of the beast. I'm just saying I ain't getting no chip. <laughs> I'd rather get sick. <laughs> All right. So again, there has to be a something, a progression leading up, right? The, the world is going to have to be prepared for the coming of the Antichrist, right? Just like the world had to be prepared for the coming of Jesus. In Galatians, the Bible says that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born under the law, born of a woman, right? He, he couldn't just drop Jesus down at any moment in time and say, hey, get on the cross. The, the world had to be prepared. So 400 years prior, God sent Alexander the Great to conquer everything from North Africa to India and then forced everybody Greek so that after Jesus died, his apostles to go everywhere, right? Rome took in, um, uh, of course, came in afterwards and built the Roman roads, and they could travel these roads, and everybody spoke the same language, so they didn't have to figure out, now, how do I translate this into a new language so that everybody can understand it? So that literally within one generation, everybody, nearly everybody in the empire, could have had the gospel, okay? So God prepared the time for the coming of Christ, and I believe that the world is going to have to be prepared for the coming of the Antichrist. Does everybody understand that? So, again, I think that, that, that most of the book is futuristic, but it, th th there has to be a preparation time. Everybody got me. All right. So now let me show you really quickly different views on what we call the millennium. Okay, because I think this, this has an impact on how we interpret the book of Revelation as well. So you'll, you'll see uh, uh, one sheet that I gave you says millennial views. Okay. So again, there are, are three major views on, on this. Okay. And when we talk about the millennium, we're talking about um, the book of Revelation uh, talks about, you know, the thousand year reign of Christ. Okay. So there's different ways to understand uh, the, uh, this uh, this millennium. Okay, so let me start at the bottom. There is a view called postmillennialism. Okay, now when they say postmillennial, right? What they're saying is that they believe that Jesus will return at the end of the millennium. Okay, 
Jesus will return at the end of the millennium. So as you see here, right, we have the there's the church age or church period on, on here. Right. There's a question mark because we don't know when the the church age ends. However, the viewpoint is that the church will be so effective in in spreading the gospel that the church will bring in the millennium. And there's going to be peace on earth and the spreading of the gospel and everything is going to be great. This was a was um, was probably the most popular view until World War Two. Right. Two world wars really kind of shakes your opinion of thinking that the church is going to be able to bring in a golden age of the earth. Where if you look at Isaiah, the lion will lay down with the lamb and will not kill it. We haven't been that effective yet as the, in the church. So they believe that after the church brings in the millennium, right, then there will be the tribulation period. Then Jesus will come back after the church has successfully reached um, the entire world. Then we get it go into the new heavens and the new earth. Okay. Next view up is the uh, is amillennialism, right? Um, uh, when you put the an alpha on the beginning of a word in Greek, it negates the idea. Okay, so these uh, so amillennial means no millennium. Okay, now it's kind of a misnomer. It's not because they don't believe that there is a millennium. The, what they believe is that there is no physical or literal millennium. They do not believe that Jesus will come back and reign on earth for a thousand years. Okay. They believe that, you know, that it's going to be more of a, you know, a spiritual reign, so to speak, so that either, either depending on your viewpoint, the church is the millennium, right? We're living in the millennium right now, or that the saints in heaven are the ones living in the millennium. Okay. So either way, that we have the church age, then the tribulation period, then Jesus returns, then we have the new heavens and the new earth. The third view, which is the <coughs> right view, I mean the premillennialism view, sorry, no. <laughs> premillennialism, all right, says that Jesus returns before the millennium, and he himself inaugurates the millennium. So as you see here, uh, we have the church age. Then what the event that will end the church age is the rapture of the church. Okay. Um, now, the reason I say that, that I believe that the pre premillennial view is, is the right view, right? So, so <laughs> I'm a little prideful, but I shouldn't say that. But... The reason I think is because it is the only view that does adequate justice to the verses on the rapture. Notice on any of these, on the other two views, there's no rapture. There's no rapture. What do you do with the passages in Paul that says we shall be caught up? to meet him in the air. I mean, I guess we will be caught up and then drop back to the ground for the millennium. I, I don't know. <laughs> what, do you, what do you do with those verses? Okay. So, so the, peer, the thing, the event that will end the church age is the rapture. Jesus takes us to heaven with himself, right? Then that will begin the tribulation period. Um, and the tribulation period is seven years. Although when we get to that, um, I'm, I will, we will go to Ezekiel chapter 38 and talk about something I'm wrestling with that I, I don't believe that it will be quite seven, se a seven year period of time. There, there has to be an overlap but before the, the tribulation begins. Um, but we'll, we'll, we'll come to that, in my opinion. Um, then the battle of Armageddon takes place, right? Jesus returns, he will destroy all of his enemies. He then sets up the millennium. He lives on earth um, and reigns for a thousand years. After that um, is the great white throne judgment, right? There has to be a, another resurrection, of course, for the great white throne judgment. And then there will be the new heavens and the new earth. Okay, so these are the other th three views. Um, you know, different people, depending on your type of interpretation, 
right? Um, you will hold to different views, okay? Um, now, these things, are, uh, again, you have to hold a level of humility on, right? Because, I mean, it's easy to say, well, my view is the right view, right? But then you have millions of Christians around the world who hold the different views, okay? So there has to be a level of humility. The, the, the goal is, in my opinion, is which interpretation does the best with handling the text. Okay. Um, and I would say that interpretation has to be a consistent interpretation. Um, and in my opinion, the view that holds the most consistent interpretation without having to resort to like allegory and things like that is the premillennial view. All right, so second sheet that I gave you, right, is just, again, another overview of all of history, okay, because this is what we, what, we, what we come into with the book of Revelation, right, an overview of all of history so that we can see it all together, right, you have creation, right, then there's a, a period of time that, you know, we can't really calculate, because we don't know how much time, uh, there was between Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 11. Uh, I promise you it's not billions of years, though. I promise you that. I promise you it's not billions of years. Okay. Um, I promise you it's not millions either. <laughs> but then we have the Mosaic um, um, period, right? So the, the time that Moses instituted the law, and then up until the time of Jesus' first coming, right? So there we have the cross. Then Jesus ascends back to heaven. Of course, this is what we call the church age, right, Th where the gospel has been spreading. But the Bible calls the days that we live in the last days. So I, oftentimes people will ask me, do you think we're living in the last days? I'm like, of course we're living in the last days. The last days started the day Jesus went to heaven. <laughs> okay. All of this is, the la uh, according to the Bible, is the last days. Now, do I know that Jesus is coming next year? I don't know that. Do I know that Jesus is coming in our lifetime? I do not know that. Now, it's starting to look like it, but I don't know that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. But all of this is the last days. The church age is the last days. Um, there will be then the, um, the rapture of the church, which will start the tribulation period, or sometime after the rapture will start the tribulation period. The tribulation period will, will last seven uh, years. Then we will have what is um, um, called the parousia, right, which just means the appearance of Christ. Um, he will, will come. Of course, we know, of course, um, um, this is, you know, the Battle of Armageddon and all those things, but I guess they couldn't fit all of that in. That will then start the millennium, which will last for 1,000 years. Then there will be another resurrection of those who are unsaved, the great white throne judgment. Then God destroys this universe and creates the new heaven and the new earth. All right. So that, that's an overview. That'll be the, this will be the, the, the scheme of, of, of thinking as we work our way through the book of Revelation. And we'll see many passages that I believe will show that that is the order of events to come. Right. Now, I know it's Sunday, but any questions, comments, concerns before I, I move on? Hmm. Can we can we upload um, documents to the Faith Life? Okay, I think we should be able to see. Mm -hmm. Sure, you can have my copy. <laughs> Please have a second. Thanks. And if you need, if we need more, we can print some before you go. All right, so that's a, that's the format we're following. Now, as far anybody else, question, 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 question. All right, doing once. I feel like Ben Stein. Anyone? Anyone? Bueller. Bueller, <laughs> anybody? It's like the young kids are kind of like, what? What is he talking about? Like, y'all gotta start watching these old movies like First Bueller's Day Off, man. It's classic. I might go home and watch it tonight. But no. <laughs> All right. What's the theme of the Book of Revelation? 
What is the theme of the book of Revelation? I think John gives that to us again in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. He says, the theme of the book of Revelation is the second coming of Jesus Christ. The second coming of Jesus Christ. Verse 7. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. Now, Revelation chapter 1, verse 7 is, is, is actually John taking parts of Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, and Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, and kind of putting them together, right? And so he's saying that he's going to come back and be like, yeah, we want Jesus to come back. But the nations of the world are going to mourn when they see him. It brings up, we'll, we'll look at some of these passages in the psalm, like Psalm 2, <laughs> right? It says, why do the nations rage? And the people plot a vain thing. They say that we don't want to serve him. Let us cast off his bonds from us. And then it says, he who sits in heaven, he just laughs. (laughs) Right? When people rebel against God, and it's like, we don't need to serve God. We don't have to believe in God. We can do what we want. He who sits in heaven, he laughs. God thinks it's funny that the world thinks that they can rebel against him, right? Then it goes to talk about the son who is going to rule the nations with a rod of iron, and he is going to dash them to pieces like a piece of clay. The nations are going to mourn when Jesus comes, because he is going to come to destroy all of his enemies. Now, listen to my message statement. Don't write this down. We have a running joke. When I, when I, when I write, uh, when, I, um, when I study a passage or a, a book of the Bible, I like to kind of, you know, I learned this from, from you know, my, my uh, seminary professor, who's like my mentor, and he knows it. He's a nerd. I'm a nerd, too. And so what I try to do is summarize in one sentence what is this passage or this book about. And oftentimes when I, uh, to to try to cram everything in, I have a run-on sentence. I know it's not grammatically right. But here's my sentence. Don't try to write it down. You're not going to get it. I would have to repeat it ten times. Don't worry about it. This is what the book of Revelation is about, okay, in line with this theme of the second coming of Jesus. Jesus Christ reveals himself as the sovereign God and king of all the earth who fulfills his purposes by ruling, guiding, and consummating, I'll explain that in a minute, um, all of human history, pouring out his judgment on the earth and then coming to earth to destroy all of his enemies and to bless all of his saints in his eternal kingdom. Y'all got it? (laughs) All right, let me say it one more time, okay. Jesus Christ reveals himself as the sovereign God and king of all the earth, who fulfills his purposes by ruling, guiding, and consummating all of human history, pouring out his judgment on the earth, and then coming to earth to destroy all of his enemies and to bless all of his saints in his eternal kingdom. Now, I think that pulls together everything that we see in the bo- um, book of Revelation, okay? So, Jesus re- is revealing himself. We know this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, right? Um, in both senses of, of the word of, of the word apocalypsis, right? He, it is a revelation of Jesus himself, but, of course, Jesus is the one who appears to John in chapter 1 and gives him the revelation, okay? So, Jesus reveals himself, and he's revealing himself as God of the world and as king of the world. He is going to fulfill his purpose, and how does he do that? He rules the earth, he guides the earth, and he consummates his purpose, right? He, he's ruling the earth as the king, 
he is guiding everything to its own purpose, right? So even when we get to, um, to Satan, it says that Satan does what God puts in his heart to do. He's ruling, he's guiding, and he is consummating his plan. So, of course, uh, we all know um, the word consummation, adults, okay? It, it, is, it is the fulfillment of a relationship called marriage, right? So, bless you, right? So, the word consummate means to fulfill or to bring something to its ultimate goal, and that is what Jesus is doing, right? He is bringing the entire universe to its ultimate goal, and the ultimate goal is to glorify God when everyone recognizes Jesus as God and King. Now, how does Jesus do that? Of course, as we see in the book of Revelation, we'll see he pours out his judgments on the earth. Then, after pouring out judgment on the earth for seven years, he comes to earth during the battle of Armageddon, and he slays anyone who opposes him. We'll look at several, some passages in the Old Testament. It shows how when Jesus returns to earth, as soon as he touches the Mount of Olives, causes the earthquake, splits the mountain, creates a valley 70 miles long. And it said, the blood that flows through that valley will be up to the, the, a horse's mouth. It's about five feet deep. And can you imagine how many people have to die to shed blood five feet deep, 70 miles long? It's a lot of people. He's going to dash them to pieces like a piece of clay. I think that what we see here, when we talk about, if we think about the idea of consummation, we're seeing that Jesus is, is bringing to the conclusion or goal of everything. That means that there has to be something that, that a sequence or order that has been taking place. Now, let me ask you this question. You have to think really, really hard, because this is question two of our catechism questions. Okay. What is God? God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. There we go. So I think that what, we, what we're seeing take place throughout the Bible, the whole storyline of the Bible, right? Because we have to remember that Genesis chapter 1 through Revelation chapter 22, it is covering all of human history. Everything in the universe is covered in Genesis 1 through Revelation chapter 22, and in the story that we see throughout the Bible, we see that God is the creator, the sustainer, the redeemer, and the ruler. And I guess I can say consummator. I don't think that's a real word, but hey. Uh, <laughs> preachers make up words on the fly all the time, right? <laughs> right. I, I, I heard one, this, uh, somebody was preaching, you know, I'm in uh, Hebrews 11. You know, Those who come to God must believe that God is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently see. And we're going to preach on the isness of God. I had to get a dictionary. I'm like, is Ness. Okay. <laughs> okay. So he is the consummator of the world. And what I think we um, will we'll recognize is we have to say that Jesus is the creator, the sustainer, the redeemer, the ruler and the consummator of all things. Now, I want us to uh, look at a couple of verses real quick so that we can uh, see this here, okay? Some people may have a, a, a problem with, with, um, with the idea that, but what I, I think that we have to see here, and even if we look at uh, Ephesians chapter 110, says that everything in the universe is supposed to revolve around Jesus. That's God's plan. Paul says in Ephesians 1.10. So if everything in the universe revolves around Jesus, right, we have to recognize what the Bible says and see that Jesus is the creator of this universe. Okay. Now, some of you are like, I don't know, because Genesis chapter 1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And I don't think that's a problem because Jesus is God. So let us look at what the Bible says about 
who created the world. Turn with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. The Gospel of John chapter 1. Jesus is not only the consummator, the one who brings everything to fulfillment. He is the one who started it all. Now let's listen here. John chapter 1, verse 1. Everybody knows this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. What, what does John say about the creation of the world? Who created it? God? Now, notice here when it says, uh, verse 3, all things were made through him. We, we, we see this throughout the New Testament. This is what we call a genitive of agency. Jesus is the agent that God the Father used to create the world. Now, let me ask you this question. Let me put it this way. If I'm, a, if I'm a model and I get a, a contract, right, I hire an agent, my agent is working for me, and they get me a, 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 a modeling contract. Now, when I go to my family and I say, hey, I got a modeling contract, am I telling the truth? Did I get a modeling contract? Yes, I did. It is my contract. Did I do the work to get the contract? No, my agent did the work, right? So Jesus created the world on behalf of his father, and that's why John says, through him, everything was made, and apart from him, nothing was made that was made. So in Genesis chapter 1, 1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It doesn't specify which person of the Trinity made the world. Both of them were involved. But the one that did the work was Jesus. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. I'm going to have to pick up the speed a little bit. Verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Now notice here, um, verse 15 talks about Jesus being the image of the invisible God, right? He is the akon, is the Greek word here, right? He is the physical representation of the invisible God. My seminary professor said, what does the invisible God see when he looks in the mirror? The answer is Jesus. He is the physical representation of, of the invisible God. And it goes on to say that 
I, I doubt with this, I'm not going to take time um, to, to go through this, but we say he's the firstborn of all creation, right? I know of Jehovah's Witness say he's the firstborn. He, that means he's the first one that was created. That is not what the, he, what the Hebrew, I, I would say even the Greek understanding of the, of the word firstborn it is. But if you look at the trace, the word firstborn throughout, it is talking about a status, right? It, it is saying that he is the ruler of God's creation, not the first one created. And we spent like a whole Sunday going through the verses on that. So I'm not going to take time looking at that at all. Right. He is the in, is the physical representation of the invisible God. He rules all of the creation. And it says that by him, everything was created. I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter one. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. says, God, meaning the Father, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. Okay, so whom... Right. Whom is referring to which person? Jesus, some of the son. So the son whom he appointed heir of all things through whom. He also made the world. Right. So he appointed Jesus as the heir of the world and through Jesus, through him, he made the world. Everybody see that? He goes on to say again, talking about him being, verse 3, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image, the physical representation of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power. Now notice, again, several passages of scripture says that Jesus is the creator of the universe. Right? And there is no contradiction in saying God made the universe and Jesus made the universe because Jesus is God. Everybody with me? Okay. Now, Jesus is the creator of the universe, and Jesus is the sustainer of the universe. We just read it in verse 3. Look at it, verse 3 again of Hebrews chapter 1. Who, referring to Jesus, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. He sustains everything by his powerful word. Whose powerful word? Jesus' powerful word. Because when Jesus said, let there be light, <laughs> there was light. And it's going to continue until he, until he turns out the light. <laughs> the world is being sustained by Jesus' powerful word. You all thought it was Adams that was keeping everything together. <laughs> and the only reason that Adams keep everything together is because of Jesus' powerful word. I want you to turn back to Colossians chapter 1. I'll read it to you so I can move on. Colossians chapter 1, 17 says that he is before all things, and in him all things consist. The word consist just means are held together. Jesus is the creator of the world. Jesus is the one who sustains the world. And of course, we all know that Jesus is the redeemer of the world. I don't even have to really give you any verses on this, but... I mean, we all know that Jesus died on the cross to, to save and redeem us. But I, let me just read for you Hebrews 1, 3, one last time. It's the last sex part of Hebrews 1, 3. It says, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the, by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. 
he purged our sins by himself. He is the creator, sustainer, and redeemer of the world. And now as we get to the book of Revelation, we are learning that not only is he the creator, not only is he the sustainer, not only is he the redeemer, but he is also the ruler and consummator of the world. Now, this is not just something that we see in the book of in the book of Revelation. This is is throughout the New Testament. A couple passages real quick and one here and then one back in Revelation. Uh, Philippians chapter two. We all know this passage of scripture. Philippians chapter two. It was one of our scripture memory verses that we we learned before we started the catechism. All right, so you hopefully I should test y'all and see if y'all still memorize it. Sorry, I'm messing with you. Philippians chapter two, verse five. Right, we all know. Says, "Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus." who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and of those in heaven, of those on earth and of those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, notice what this passage says really quickly. He says that Jesus being in the form of God. Right now, the word form there is nature. He says by nature he is God. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God. And notice we, we spend time going, I'm going through this passage again, but remember the word robbery here, I, 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 well, I don't like this translation of uh, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. I, I don't think that uh, accurately reflects the idea of kenosis here. But, but again, the, the, what it means is the Greek word originally meant to seize something by force through robbery. But it came to mean holding on to a clinging on to something and not letting it go. So Paul is saying, even though by nature he was already God, he didn't cling and hold on to his status. He let it go. He emptied himself. Right. And he emptied himself. Not taking off his deity, of course, they'd be like, oh, that's, that's what canonic theory says. Like he, he, he took off his deity and put on humanity. That's absurd. How can God stop being God? That doesn't even make sense. The text tells us what it means by he emptied himself, right, or thought it not robbery to be equal with God is what, um, and made himself no reputation. What did he do? He took the form of a bondservant and came in the likeness of men. To his deity, he added his humanity. And so it's a reference to the hypostatic union of Christ. And after he was found in, the f in, in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, he died on the cross, and because of that, the Father exalted him after his death and resurrection back to status of ruler of the world, and at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that what? Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know what's interesting, or what, what it means to say that Jesus is Lord? It literally means everyone will confess that Jesus is God. Because the word kurios here is the same word translated Jehovah in the Old Testament. It's recognizing that Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. Because there's only one God. Revelation chapter 1, my last one and I'm done. I'm sorry, a lot, I got... A, a reference to compare to this, and then I'm done. Revelation chapter 1, 
when we go back to Revelation chapter one, what we're seeing here in this in this passage is that Jesus is revealing himself as the God and King of the world. Right now, look at what John says when John is on the island of Patmos. Right. Jesus appears to him. And this is what he sees. Verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the son of man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Now, I want you to keep your hand in Revelation chapter 1. I want you to turn to Daniel chapter 7. And listen, you cannot understand the book of Revelation without the book of Daniel. It's not, you, you, got, you have to read them together. Daniel chapter 7. I know I'm going to get myself in trouble here, but hey. That's what I do, right? <laughs> That's what I do. Now, let me ask this question up front. Let me ask this question up front. Now, imagine yourself being John on the island of Patmos. And you're, you're, you're working in the rock, rock quarries. You're chipping away. You might be like 70, 80, 90 years old working, chipping away at rocks, right? And, and you hear this voice behind you that is a very familiar voice. You turn around. And you see Jesus standing there in all of his glory. And you want to like, oh, I got to write this down. Now, when you write down what you see about Jesus, is the first thing you want your readers to know, Jesus is a black man. <laughs> is, that, is that the first thing you're going to say? I mean, G I don't think John would have been startled. If, if G, that Jesus was black, if he had known Jesus for all of these years. I didn't say he was white, but he didn't say he was black either. All right. I told you I won't get in trouble. Now, now what I want you to do is read Daniel chapter 7. I want you to read Daniel chapter 7. Now, notice in Revelation chapter 1, the description of Jesus. It says that he was like the son of man, he was clothed with a garment down to his feet. He was girded about his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. And his voice as the sound of many waters. Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. I watched till thrones were put in place. And the Ancient of Days was seated. Who is the Ancient of Days? The Father. There you go. The Ancient of Days. What does it mean to be ancient? It means to be old. What color is the hair of old people? Okay, let's come back to that. And the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was, his garment was white as snow. The head of Jesus' hair was white like wool, as white as snow. Hmm, interesting. Daniel chapter 7. And the hair of his head was like pure wool. Daniel chapter, I mean, Revelation chapter 1. The head and hair were like wool, white as snow. Okay. Um, Daniel chapter 7. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire, a fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Revelation chapter 1. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. Hmm, interesting. 
10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning flames. And for the rest of the beast, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I was watching in the night vision and behold, one like the son of man coming with the clouds. Revelation chapter one. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man. Revelation chapter 1-7. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him. Behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, And they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Listen, what I'm trying to get you to see here is John is not talking about Jesus' race. You can't look at this passage and say Jesus was black. You can't say Jesus is white. You can't say nothing about Jesus' race from this passage because the passage is saying Jesus is being equated with the Ancient of Days. Jesus is the ruler of the world. And all nations and tribes and languages will worship and serve him because he and God the Father are equal. They are one. Anybody with me? Only got an objection. <laughs> Now listen, all I'm saying is is this. You can believe Jesus looked like anything you want. You just can't use that verse to go on like, because that's not what the verse is about. It is saying that Jesus is the prophesied ruler of the world, and he is going to come back and claim his dominion. And when he sets up his kingdom, Daniel chapter 7 His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. It is the one that will never be destroyed. Well, what what kingdom are we referring to? We we, we have to look at what, well, there are several kingdoms referred to in Daniel. There's a final kingdom that comes that when it is set up, it will last forever. Jesus is the creator, the sustainer, the redeemer, the ruler, and the consummator of all the earth. The book of Revelation is teaching us what Jesus is going to do to rule and guide and bring the universe to its ultimate end, which is the glorification of Jesus' Father through the revelation and acceptance of Jesus as God and King of everyone and everything. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for allowing us to be able to come again today to go through this passage, these passages. And even though it's not uh, necessarily traditional uh, sermon, so to speak, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to uh, take these things down and to understand what you are up to and what you have been up to all of this time. You have created a universe where you will be worshipped and adored because you are the only one that is worthy. You have used your son to create, sustain, redeem, and rule and bring to its ultimate goal this universe. We look forward to the day 
when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father, you are ultimately glorified when everyone exalts your son because numerous passages says you have done everything to point to your son. You want the world to delight in your son the same way that you delight in him. I pray, Lord, that you would teach us as believers to delight in Jesus in all things. He is the ultimate purpose and goal and end of everything. And we should delight each day of our lives to revolve around the sun because that is your purpose, as Paul said in Ephesians 1.10. I pray that you would help the church, Lord. The world will never get to the point of being able to revolve around your son until we do it and we fall short. But we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you that you have forgiven us and that you've loved us. And even though we fall short of your glory, you continue to pursue us and call us back to yourself. I pray, Lord, that you would help us every day to make that commitment to focus on the revelation of Jesus Christ. We thank you now for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Um, I know I went over my time. You all are used to it. <laughs> but um, we, we 